Welcome to Blog Talk Radio in High Fidelity. And you're listening to Pop Health Week on the Blog Talk Radio and affiliate networks. This episode is brought to you by Health Innovation Media. Welcome, everyone. I'm Greg Masters, the producer and co-host of the show. And in the virtual studio today are my colleagues, Fred Goldstein, principal co-host and co-founder here at Pop Health Week, and our our itinerant co-host at Health Innovation Media, Douglas Goldstein, also known as eFuturist. Hey, guys. Hey, how's it going today? Hey, Doing Craig well? and Fred. Good? It's, uh, it's, it's great. Happy to be here. Okay, awesome now. So we're connecting California, Florida with the state of Virginia. So for those of you not familiar with Fred, he's a veteran healthcare executive and the president of Accountable Health LLC, a Jacksonville, Florida-based consulting firm. Fred sits on the editorial board of the Journal of Population Health Management and the advisory board of Care Innovations Validation Institute. He is also past chair and former member, board member of the Population Health Alliance, PHA. Fred is known on Twitter as at FS Goldstein. Doug, aka eFuturist, on Twitter is an innovator in digital health, precision medicine, and population health. He specializes in applying the right mix of mobile, social media, gamification, big data analytics, customer science, and emerging technologies for improved performance and outcomes. As the eFuturist, Doug delivers the latest insights on health transformation through innovation, collaboration, and leadership. Popular keynotes and workshops include Innovate Now, Digital Doctoring Today, DNA and Nano Doctoring Tomorrow, and iLeadership. My background includes thought leadership and strategy consulting for hospitals, health systems, and physician-led ventures. I publish and principally author ACOWatch.com, healthinnovationmedia.com, and precisionmedicine.center. Please follow me on Twitter as at 2HealthGuru. So today, we dive into our second round of this periodic roundup of newsworthy industry developments in population health, precision medicine, and accountable care. And with that introduction, gentlemen, let's get right to it. Uh, perhaps no, most no, newsworthy, though unlikely to surprise many, is the latest installment on the Theranos drama that our colleague Fred has been following most closely. So, Fred, what have we learned from the Vanity Fair article about the former Stanford dropout turned billionaire Elizabeth Holmes? Well, I think, uh, Greg, we've learned quite a bit. And it's interesting because if you remember the last show, we commented on Theranos a bit. And since then, what you thought couldn't end just continued to go deeper and deeper. The first thing that occurred in this period of time was that CMS uh, finally issued their sanctions against Theranos and essentially told the organization it had to close its lab in Newark and was going to ban Elizabeth Holmes from the ability to run any lab or serve as a director or owner or executive for two years. Um, following that, 
there was a presentation by Theranos, the American Association of Clinical Chemistry. And that was supposed to be a presentation in which she was going to document how the technology worked and the results and that it actually could be done. And lo and behold, she shows up. And what does she do? She presents an entirely new machine or device that, that she claims does testing and puts up some statistics. And a bunch of people immediately commented that this is a bait and switch. It's not why she came. In fact, one board member of the association actually quit over it. Um, that then was followed up by this filing for uh, emergency approval or, or rapid approval of a Zika virus test, which they had to pull from uh, from the approval when they found out that they'd actually not followed HIPAA requirements in in uh, dealing with the test subjects. And so they pulled that. And now, of course, we get this Vanity Fair article that goes deeply into what was going on inside Theranos, including some of these uh, not so nice chants that apparently employees did for John Carreyrou, who is the individual at the Wall Street Journal who, who launched this story. So it's really been a downward spiral of this organization. And it's, it's really a wonder at this point that they're even continuing. Well, what, what's particularly interesting is that her model was Apple and Apple has a secrecy model and a silo model. She tried to replicate that in healthcare and it, it doesn't apply. You can't take business practices from mobile or communications or computers and apply it to healthcare because we have the FDA, we have a lot of regulations and she was too immature or too inexperienced to realize that. And um, I think it was particularly telling uh, and really, really sad in that the chief scientist ended up committing suicide. And uh, the response from her office was, okay, we're sending someone over to gather all the documents, et cetera, don't do anything. No, no condolences from, you know, the CEO who brought her in. So that's particularly telling about a company without either a heart, a spirit, or knowledge of healthcare and the, how it is different. Yeah, and your point is so well taken that if you think really about how some of these uh, uh, healthcare systems are now trying to structure themselves to create the, the latest and greatest of these new technologies, it really is about getting different people and groups and approaches to communicate together and to create that environment where, um, for example, in Lake Nona, where you put all of these hospitals next to each other and these re research centers and these nursing programs and everything to try to create an environment where people are talking to each other and, and sharing ideas and information, which is which obviously was clearly not done in this case. Also brings to light some of the cozy relationships between Silicon Valley startups and the investors who who love them. So perhaps maybe the summation commentary might be, uh, is Elizabeth, is Elizabeth Holmes homeless at any point in the near future? Oh, you're stealing my quote, Greg. <laughs> Sorry, it was too good. <laughs> yeah, well, I think she's got, you know, uh, uh, my understanding was it was a small apartment, so maybe it'll be uh, the parents' album or something like that. <laughs> Well, no doubt, interesting stuff, and the drip, drip, drip is likely to continue as uh, as more insights are developed by these investigational um, looksies. So uh, here's another one right up your alley, Fred. Tell us uh, about the recent acquisition of Healthways by Jeff Arnold's ShareCare. Uh, what do you make of this transaction, and what does it say about the population health and digital health industry, industries writ large? 
This is another really interesting one because, I mean, Healthways, unlike Theranos, has been around for a long time. They were one of the real founders of, of disease management and then the population health industry. And one of the, at one time, the darling and the big success story in that field. Um, and more recently, they've struggled and had some distant shareholders uh, try to, to throw some people out and then were able to get a few people on the board. And when they did that, they went ahead and, and, and uh, took out the CEO and decided to do an internal study to say, what do we do with this company? And at the end of the day, what they decided, which is just fascinating when you think about it, is that their entire population health management program that also includes the, the uh, Blue Zones, the Dean Ornish program, and the um, Gallup Healthways survey tool, they went ahead and, um, and decided to, to sell that to ShareCare. The big surprise really was the price. You know, essentially, ShareCare gave Healthways $30 million in stock, and Healthways provided ShareCare with $25 million in cash to offset projected losses with the possibility that they might have to give up up to $20 million of further of the stock if the losses are greater than, than projected. So essentially, they gave the company away, or that giant piece of the company, um, and obviously that means that that, that group must have been losing a, a fair amount of money in the process. And um, now you've got 1,700 new employees at ShareCare. Obviously, ShareCare has been going at this from a very different model, really a technological play and um, trying to integrate some innovative stuff into it. They've got some powerhouse media folks and other really well-known people involved in the company. So it'll be interesting to see, one, if they're able to really create the synergies here they think they can, and if they can turn Healthways uh, functions around. And what's your take on that? I mean, when I, when I think of Healthways, and perhaps as the trophy property in the population health space, the, what comes to my mind is silver sneakers. Um, when I think share care, I kind of come up blank other than Dr. Oz. So Correct. what are the real assets here? And so what you just said is very interesting. The silver sneakers assets are staying with Healthways. So it's going to have a new oh. name and they're, they're keeping those assets and a, um, a physician asset or clinic type asset and one other asset with as what will be rolled out with a new company and name while the Healthways name and the population health piece goes with ShareCare. And you're right. I mean, I haven't heard a lot about ShareCare. This obviously gives them some inroads into some employer populations. It gives them a huge nursing group potentially for call center and those type of activities. And there has been a research and clinical type um, data analytics arm at Healthways. Although, you know, over time, new other companies clearly were, were making better inroads into the space of the new era of population health and healthways had, had obviously been in some sort of a decline in that area. I'm just wondering if this is savvy negotiation by Sean Slavinsky. <laughs> it, it might be. Obviously, Sean's a good friend of ours and went over to Healthways, the head of their population health, and he's now with uh, ShareCare overseeing that division. So it could be that, that uh, with some of his background experience and those of uh, the ShareCare folks, they come up with a new integrated model that, that really does uh, become a consumer-centric population health focused, but still sold out to uh, employers and other payers. Fred, Doug, any, thought, any thoughts? 
yeah, well, I actually have a question for Fred. Fred, you, you follow the disease management industry. I, I, it's my observation that there's not a mature industry here, right? Because it's been so ever-changing. And so essentially you have old assets that ShareCare has acquired for a set of relationships. You've got Healthways retaining pieces of it. And the, the deals happening in the space, the acquisition of, of Predolytics or other companies, other population health management are, are, are not public companies. There's not a public market. And these companies are, they go through various stages of investment. They build some assets. IBM buys them, whoever buys them, Optum buys them to add to a portfolio of solutions because these individual companies don't have scale and the risk is so large. I mean, what's your thoughts? It, it 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 might be some of it. I think in the in the Healthways case, I think you know they originally had just clearly focused on the payers, and years ago they lost the Cigna business. They had the Medicare Health Support Project, which was a big DM project, and it didn't work. And so they they sort of were on this downhill slope, trying to reinvent themselves as a wellness company or a more front end versus disease management company in, in some ways. And other more nimble companies, I think, got into that space. And that was really when they had acquired um, the Silver Sneakers program as part of that. And that really grew. And that became what I believe is a fairly profitable piece of business. And that's why the health, the, the health waste investor folks kept that and unloaded the rest of it. And they actually talk about they think that'll that'll have about a 20% margin, whereas I believe, based on the price at least, you would think that Healthways has, has been losing money. And obviously, if they said if they don't, you know, turn some of those losses around, Healthways will the Healthways will get even less stock or have to pay some of that stock back. Right. Very interesting. So we'll we'll keep our eye on that share care and uh, how this assimilation of Healthways proceeds. Uh, no doubt uh, this will be interesting. So Doug, over to you. Precision Medicine has been in the spotlight since uh, President Obama launched the initiative in January 2015 and most recently leveraged up by the work of the Veep, Joe Biden, by the Cancer Moonshot Initiative. You're the closest to this developing story. Uh, what can you tell us? The conclusion of the day is precision medicine is just part of population health, uh, whether it's uh, inventing a new interventional device, uh, therapeutic, whether it's gene therapy, whether it's uh, whatever innovation, technological or whatever, this is about health and it's all about improving individual health status and population health. So I think precision medicine is just part of the tools that are evolving and we're we're trying to figure out the value proposition. We know that uh, someone's genomic profile is accountable for, call it 25%. Uh, we know certain uh, Plavex only works in people with certain genetic profiles. We know there's cultural variations, and those are actionable and those are important. But we have to demonstrate, and we're on the front end of demonstrating value propositions of both genetic testing and pharmagenomic testing. And those are key components of precision medicine. So. Uh, just like we know wearables will make a difference in people's lives and that will improve health status through them, we don't know. We haven't, the evidence base doesn't exist for that. And we're just evolving the evidence base on wearables. We're evolving the evidence base to support improved outcomes across individuals and populations. Um, and that whole realm is called digital therapeutics, whether we're applying wearables or precision medicine. So I think that we're on the front end of a revolution, but. 
payers are not flocking to fund pharmacogenomic testing, uh, or but there is a, clearly a lot of movement in building genetic profiles. VA is sitting on 500,000 genetic sequences of veterans, and we have the million, uh, we have the million, the PM, uh, PMI NIH initiative, which has funded the initial effort to build a cohort of a million. Um, so we're on the front end of this. So, Doug, you sound a little bit like not real excited about this, but given that it is the front end and, you know, as is typical, these, these things have to first, you know, come off the bench, get out of the lab, get into the market, and then expand out. I guess payers may be a little hesitant at this point, although I think you're starting to see some payment maybe for some of the, uh, the pharmacogenetic screenings like you talked about with, uh, with some of the drugs. Um, don't you think that over the next five, 10 years, we will see some major impact by some of this? Well, the answer is yes. I, I think that uh, it's, it's an exciting dimension. And as a futurist, I like to be on the cutting edge uh, of what's practical. And I believe that precision medicine is a critical part of the tool chest, just like wearables are. Wearables are a bit ahead of precision medicine, but they both have a lot of momentum, a lot of traction. We in, instinctively know that they're going to make a difference in people's lives, but both categories of digital therapeutics and precision medicine therapeutics have to demonstrate because we, we, we live in an industry that requires the evidence to support whether it's direct payment from an individual or payment from a provider. So, no, I'm, I'm focusing on most of my time on precision medicine, so I'm, I am psyched about it, <laughs> but I just want to be realistic about where we are and recognize that multiple parties we need scale. We need partnerships between pharmacological companies, technology companies, providers, payers. We need partnerships to demonstrate the value of these interventions. It's not going to be done by a single health system. So, so you are the antithesis when looking for um, the value and that the thing actually works of Theranos. <laughs> Make sure the thing's out there and then, and then, and then take it to market. Well, there's an interesting company here locally, and I, I, I've seen another, being in the Washington, D.C. area, um, the company that won the NIH Precision Medicine Participant Technology Center has been flying under the radar for the last seven years. They've built a very robust technology platform focused on conversations and interactions and engagement, and they've done it through 10 NIH small business you know, uh, SBIRs and NIH grants, and then they layered on a set of, whether it's a leading life sciences company, they, they, they're they a back end to a lot of solutions that you've never heard of in Vibrant Health. But Vibrant Health has got a solution and it built it with government money. And in in the in the testing space, there's a company called, uh, spun out of uh, George Mason University called Cirrus Nanoscience that, that demonstrate the same model of, and publishing, right? They 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 got grants, they got Clinton Foundation money, they got multiple sources of money. They published the evidence of their nano trap testing methodology and all that. They published all along the way. They built the evidence base, they built support, and you know, it wasn't an overnight success, but they have progressively demonstrated and just released publicly, you know, their nano trap. So I, I think there's models for doing 
this correct, but you need patience and you need to understand how the system works. And Theranos didn't. <laughs> well, well put. So, Doug, are we really seeing um, the initial expression of precision medicine mostly in, in terms of cancer or is it a broader picture? Well, you got two dimensions. So it is definitely a broader picture, but the greatest attention is around pharmacogenomic testing and the personalization of therapies in the context of cancer. Because cancer is, you know, the t whole typology of cancer is changing. Number one, it, it's not a breast cancer. It's a type of cancer that happens to be in your breast versus another part of your body. So we're creating a typology of not 10 cancers, but dozens of cancer types. And the other dynamic that we have and science is identifying is the evolution of these tumors in our body is constantly changing. So it's a moving target and, and the technologies from immunotherapy uh, are evolving quickly, but the complexity is, is highly, is, is, there's huge complexity. So yes, pharmacogenomic testing, particularly as it relates to cancer, and then all the things around cancer moonshot and the fact that we can put a man on the moon in 10 years, we can cure cancer. But the moon is, is variable and it orbits. Cancer is a moving target. It's a living, breathing sort of entity inside of our body. And I think it's a bigger challenge to conquer cancer because of the variability and the differences as it, it represents itself in different humans, different cultures, different environmental contexts. So I think it's a... I think it's a much bigger challenge than putting a man on the moon or a human on the moon. Um, but I think progress is being made and the targeting and the precision of therapies is active across leading cancer centers in the country and therapeutics are evolving. And we're seeing that cancer, we've evolved in the last 20 years that cancer is a chronic condition and it can be managed. I mean, the Inova Shower Cancer Center with James Wade and Donald Trump and Joan Schiller and the leadership team there is is on the forefront of turning cancer into an ambulatory, you know, condition that can be managed and life can be extended just like we've done with HIV. So we can turn it to a chronic disease, we can manage it, we can extend life, and we are doing that and the evidence supports that. And the forefront is getting even better and better and reducing the toxicity and the focus of the interventions. And that's, look, that's what I'm excited about. I get to sit with these leaders and sit through leading presentations on immunotherapy and, and it, uh, there, there's big hope out there. So you, you actually said something, yeah, but you said something a little counterintuitive, which is at the end of the day, precision medicine is sort of another cut at population health. Most think it's a it, that that's really a binary. It's population health or precision medicine. W what are we missing? We don't call it mobile. I mean, we call it mobile health. But these are look. We humans have been inventing things for a very long time, and we're we're identifying how the universe works. We're identifying how our bodies works, and we're inventing solutions. So whether it's the telephone, whether it's the mobile device, whether it's the internet, whether it's the precision medicine treatment, this is about health. It's about individual health and population health. These are just tools in our arsenal. So I, I, you know, I've come to the conclusion, living in the world of, quote, population health and precision medicine, that it's another set of tools in the arsenal to improve 
health and happiness for all of us. That's, that's absolutely on target because if you consider the framework for population health, which is identify your population, assess your population, um, stratify them, en engage them, intervene, and measure. Precision medicine is a much more precise assessment and stratification tool within the broader context of a population health program. And remember, populations are changed one person at a time. So if you can identify precisely in an assessment, which includes a precision medicine assessment, what this person needs, you can then engage them and intervene appropriately to measure and, uh, and hopefully achieve a better outcome. Right. Which, let's, which, let's, extend, let's, let's extend that and partner that with, quote, wearable digital therapeutics. So yep. we, we know with joint replacement that 50% of the outcome, 50% of the population is under 65, they're in the workforce. If people after their surgery, 50% outcomes depends on what you do afterwards. Do you gain weight? Do you become sedentary? Do you do your PT? And over what extended period of time? Your lifestyle. If you gain weight, become sedentary, you're not, your joint's not going to work. And like you'd like it to, your outcomes are not going to be what you want. I had a recent discussion with our um, the Inova Shar Cancer Center uh, Institute at the new Inova Center for Personalized Health, the leadership. They estimated that understanding the ambulation and mobility of a medical oncology population before treatment and then monitoring afterwards could be important for 30 to 40% of patients going through oncological treatment to avoid readmissions, new admissions, dehydration, and a whole number of things to understand their activity level before and after. So it, it's about moving from transactions, what do I get paid for the medical oncology drugs, to a relationship and precision medicine and targeting that um, oncological treatment is part of the solution. But we have to know people as people before and after that treatment if we're going to truly improve outcomes. It's population health. Yep. Well, one we'll follow rather closely, and with your roots and reach uh, in Northern Virginia there, Doug, we'll sure you keep us updated. So let's pivot to our final major topic today, which is uh, ACOs. And on August 25th, CMS released a results announcement with the following headline, Physician and Healthcare Providers Continue to Improve Quality of Care and Lower Cost. Physicians and healthcare providers continue to improve the quality of care and lower costs. Andy Slavitt, the acting administrator of CMS, tweeted out similar headline, ACO results. Physicians are changing care with better results for patients and are saving money over $1 billion. One of the tweets that followed in the conversation was, but only 125 ACOs received shared savings payments. Still much to learn, question mark or all low-hanging fruit already picked, question mark, which is a legitimate question. We were able to post on ACO Watch a summary of um, the results by Ashish Jha. If you go to acowatch.com, it's titled, it is titled, Winner, ACOs, Winners and Losers, A Quick Take. And he breaks down the financial results as follows. There were 203 winners, 51.8% of the participating Medicare shared savings programs. There were nine, 189, quote, losers, 
which represents 48.2% for a grand total of 392 participating. The net gain in terms of savings was 429,254,696. But what he goes on to point out is it does not factor in the cost and overhead associated with launching the program and the fact that any savings generated were split between the participating ACOs and uh, CMS. And his, he concludes as follows. Overall, the a ACOs seem to be coming in under target, albeit just slightly, about 0.6% below target in 2015, and generating savings as long as you don't count what CMS pays back to ACOs. Second, their longer-standing ACOs are doing better, and maybe that pretends good things for the future, or maybe it's just a self-selected group that with experience isn't generalizable. And finally, this is the most important issue of all. We have to continue to move towards getting all these organizations into a two-sided model, risk model, where CMS can recoup some of the losses. Right now, we have a classic heads ACO wins, tails CMS loses situation, and it simply isn't financially sustainable. Senior policy makers need to continue to push ACOs into a two-sided model where they can share in savings but also have to pay back losses. Barring that, there's little reason to think that ACOs will bend the cost curve in a meaningful way. So my question to you guys is, as I've often referred to ACOs as HMO light, uh, is this really the ultimate, are we really just gaining or developing the knowledge base and evidence that we're gonna go back to HMOs and that ACOs, unless they're risk bearing, just aren't enough to make a difference in a volume driven economy? Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's very well put. I think um, as, as is well pointed out in the article, you know, in the post, the, um, the ACOs have not proven to be that successful. Um, it probably is in many cases, low hanging fruit. And, and it really does need to be an upside and downside type equation, more like a, a, an HMO would operate. Although um, I had met earlier this week with one of the uh, operators of about six ACOs in three states, and they said there was no way they were ever going to go downside risk, which I think actually the system will ultimately force them to. And at that point, they may have to decide to step out. So it'll be interesting to see. I Doug, any thoughts? It's a way station. It's a way station. Just a way station. The, the the problem is that we, if you, the Harvard Business Review did a very, you know, is it bundled payment, episodes of care, or do you move total risk? So you have Intermountain saying it's got to be total risk, and you have, um, uh, I'm blanking on his name, building the case, uh, Christensen, building the case for it's got to be episodes of care. Episodes of care is fee for service, but just bundled. I mean, it's as complex. The complexity is there. It it bundles, for the most part, physician hospital services. It's not bundling a relationship about what happens before or after care. So I think ACOs were a happy medium that ended up in the payment process without the scale, without the financial resources, and add to that the fact that uh, the reason the major insurers are pulling out of um, the the ACA is because of the legislation that 
um, subsidize their losses until the risk pool expands. That that's, is starting to happen now, but re the Congress, Republican-controlled, basically stopped the um, subsidy payments to the large-scale insurance companies that were trying to make a go of it in the ACA because it's taking multiple years for the risk pool to get younger and less risky, which has started to happen according to the Kaiser Foundation research. So I think ACOs were um, insufficiently capitalized and with insufficient resources to and and not having the scale to really do what needs to do when you start when you talk about population health. It can't be on a state by state basis. Fred. I think sounds reasonable uh, to me. Um, it does. It does, and and um, it'll be interesting to see the next couple of years. I, I I have some slight disagreements on the exchanges, and and why some of the plans got out because I think even when the others come in, I think the pricing was still going to be inappropriate, and that's why you're seeing these prices go up 19 percent in Florida alone, um, and even higher in some other states. But I, but I do think the the um, ACOs was a way to to appease the hospitals and the providers uh, by putting them into a program that looked like it might be, do something good, but not put put them under any sort of a risk uh, arrangement. Yeah. And in the long run, yeah, if I, you I want to pull costs out of the system, we have to go to risk. Right. It's inevitable. And I, I think Doug nails it. It kind of, you know, what it brought to mind is back in the day when IPAs were first formed and the first round was to negotiate a quote discounted fee schedule and because nobody's doing anything differently they slap a little withhold on it and if everything comes in at, at budget or under they'll get their withhold back but no one ever saw withholds returned <laughs> so it's kind right. of like it's kind of similar but it, it i'm just saying the hands right the handwriting's on the wall medicare advantage is a program that seems to be working and growing there's some questions there with calculations methodologies and reimbursement whether it's fair to the treasury or not but uh, it remains a more effective model but i think as acos continue to mature they're ultimately going to look very much like medicare advantage operators so with that we'll continue to watch the results as they come out of cms on acos and there's a whole lot going on in the commercial space but this is medicare data so we'll leave it at that so we are at the end of our broadcast for this session we want to bring uh forward uh, at least uh, three newsworthy items one is that uh uh, Health 2.0 is uh, meeting later this month at Santa Clara Convention Center. And then following that in October, I don't have the exact dates with me. I don't know if you recall it, Fred, but FLACO, the Florida Association of ACOs, is having their third annual meeting. We will be there as well. And the final thing I do want to mention is uh, Frost and Sullivan announced today that they were recognizing our friends at Validic. Drew Schiller, Ryan Beckland, and Chris Edwards specifically as the de facto uh, uh, platform for interoperability in the digital health domain. They have an award here for visionary leadership through superior adaptable digital health platform. So we want to give a shout out to our friends at Validic. So guys, any final thoughts before we wrap up the session? Just looking forward to doing this again, and I'm sure we'll have some interesting topics in the next quarter to discuss. Doug? It's a new day in health, but we still have the complexity, and we have new tools, precision medicine, wearables, mobile devices, and I believe people are more engaged in their health across 
all age groups. So I think it's a new day, but we still have the complexity. Oh, there you have it. And that will be the last word for today's broadcast. I want to thank my colleagues, Fred Goldstein and Douglas Goldstein, for their time and many insights today. Do follow Doug on the web at www.efuturist.net and on Twitter via at efuturist and Fred at www.accountablehealthllc.com and on Twitter via FS Goldstein. And yours truly via at 2 Guru. Until we meet again, I'm Pop Health Week for Fred Goldstein and Doug Goldstein. This is Greg Master saying bye now.